This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Welcome back to More Than Amused Podcast. My name is Sadie. And I'm Stani. And thanks for being here for another episode. This one's really fun. I feel like it kind of ties into our Betty White episode, but like not really. Because we were like talking about a TV show that we hadn't seen. And now we get to talk about ones that we have. (laughs) Yeah. Or at least we can continue talking about the world of TV. I feel like we haven't touched on that really much at all. Mm-mm. until now this month with Betty White, who was a TV icon, and then now women created TV shows. Which is also really cool because the world of television in general is very male-dominated. Yeah. <laughs> I was yes. like, I don't know exactly how to word this, but a lot more men are the predominant writers in TV shows and actors and producers than mm-hmm. women. And so the fact that these like three fundamental shows were all like at least partially created and written by women yeah um, in like a major way like at least a partnership or on their own that's a really big deal and by the way the three tv shows that we're talking about are friends new girl and gilmore girls yeah obviously there are a lot of other women written and created tv shows out there but i feel Mm -hmm. like those are three really really popular ones that lasted a lot of seasons so and I had no idea they were created by women yeah I know I feel like when people are listing like what have been the most monumental tv shows of our generation definitely friends yeah definitely friends comes up I feel like new girl is maybe a little bit more understated but still usually there mm-hmm. and then um Gilmore Girls um kind of has like been rising a little bit in popularity but Um, was always kind of there as like the undercurrent of Mm -hmm. television, which has been really cool. I mean, truthfully, I don't know how I missed the memo on Gilmore Girls, but I hardly really even heard of it until more recently when people were talking about it on TikTok. I don't know if there was a random resurgence in Gilmore Girl fandom or if I just finally found it in the world. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm currently making my way through season one. I watched a good portion of that season in preparation for today's episode. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) which I'm excited about because then we get to talk about it more later. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, I found Gilmore Girls, Friends and New Girl all through Netflix. Oh, okay. So, yeah, my parents didn't have cable television growing up. I hardly ever watched anything actually on television besides, like, PBS Kids when I was little. (laughs) And that was Mm -hmm. about it. I guess for those who are out of the United States, PBS Kids is, like, the educational kids shows that they would have. That's where Sesame Street plays. (laughs) Yeah. Or they'd have, like, a little show about, like, cyber math children or something like that. I can't remember what it was called. I feel like I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) But I actually feel like PBS Kids 
great. Dragon yeah. Tales, great. Dragon Tales was great. Arthur. Oh, yeah. Clifford the Big, the big Red Dog. Like, I definitely watched all of those. But so everything much. else that I've seen TV show-wise has been because it got picked up by Netflix when Netflix became huge. Mm-hmm. Um, because we didn't have TV. So Friends got put on Netflix and got really popular, leading to them even have like paying millions of dollars to keep it for one more year until HBO Max now has it. And then same with Gilmore Girls. I started watching that, I think, in junior high and then into high school um, because it was a appropriate show for a young girl to watch by herself on yes. the TV. And so I watched all of that and then watched Year in a Life when it came out on Netflix just recently, like two years ago, maybe a little bit longer. And then New Girl, it was being released as seasons while it was still airing, I think. But like the earlier seasons Mm -hmm. were on Netflix. And so I watched that as it would come out. And I think all of these shows kind of owe a huge part of their success to Netflix. Maybe besides Friends, who didn't really need it, but their continuation. Their continuation, yeah. yeah. The continued relevancy, I'm sure. Because, yeah, all of them even. It just became people's comfort shows. Yes, exactly. And just like how popular they've become with the new generations because they're available on streaming services. Especially Mm. like. I've even heard from like the Office Ladies podcast, um, which is not female created or female written, but there are some female actresses in it. (laughs) So if you listen to the Office Ladies podcast at all, they talk a lot about how the office has gone through a whole like resurgence as well because of its popularity on Netflix as well. So interesting. Yeah, kind of cool that Netflix was able to do that. I never really watched New Girl until probably, it, well, what when was it? It was 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I had just broken up with somebody and it was truly devastating for me. And so I watched so much New Girl and that was like the very first time I had ever watched it. So New Girl got me through a breakup. So yeah, there you go. I don't watch it now very often because <laughs> I'm like, eh, I don't know. But <laughs> it got me through a very rough patch in my life. I have seen every single one of these shows probably at least three times each. <laughs> that is impressive. I didn't watch Friends for a long time because my husband didn't, doesn't care for Friends, except I started watching it recently when we got HBO Max, and then he would like start watching it with me, mm-hmm. and then he would be laughing, and I was like, oh, you do find this funny, <laughs> and I caught him. He, he found yeah. Friends funny. It's so. one of those shows that kind of sneaks up on you. I feel like a lot of people kind of hate it off the bat, and then it's like, oh, but the more you watch it, the more you really love the it. The characters just become so charming. Yeah. They're all, they're all very charming shows, honestly. Mm-hmm in their own way which is very fun we're going to talk about them and then the creators and writers kind of behind the show and then just different things that the show was able to change about like culture and tv Mm -hmm. and kind of the impact they have on the future so i'm gonna take over the writer portion give a Mm -hmm. brief summary are we just dumping in shall i talk about friends sure So with Friends, I honestly didn't find a ton of like personal information about the writer, but I have a lot of information that I found from an article from Vulture about the writing process and what it was like like in the writing room. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to kind of read little snippets from that and then also like summarize that as well because I thought it was really, really cool and really interesting. 
But Friends is a sitcom that was created by David Crane and Marta Kaufman. It's a duo there. Mm -hmm. But she was born September 21st, 1956. Obviously is an American television writer and a producer. And she's, of course, best known for being the (laughs) co-creator of Friends with her longtime friend, David Crane. And they were both executive producers of that show. But she also went on to do a couple other ones, including Veronica's Closet and Jessie. From 2005 to 2006, she was an executive producer on Related. And both writers were the creators of the HBO series Dream On. And then without Crane, she co-created the Netflix series Grace and Frankie. And then she also studied acting at the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater in New York City. So... Obviously, Friends is the one that was the most popular, but she did continue on to do other shows, which I think it's cool that she was able to maintain that partnership. Like how cool like to create something like Friends with someone and then still maintain that and go on and do other things together. But then she also did things, you know, independently, which Mm -hmm. is awesome. And then this is a fun fact. So she married Michael Skloff, who I think they ended up getting divorced, I think in 2015 or something like that. But he ended up later becoming the composer of the Friends theme song. Which is iconic. I love that. (laughs) So this is about kind of the writing style and the challenges specific to Friends. So Friends style was adapted from Seinfeld's model where they had an episode that had an A, B, and C plot. Mm -hmm. So for example, Carol is pregnant, Monica is cooking for her parents, and Rachel has misplaced her ring. Which I think is pretty much the plot of almost every sitcom now, right? Like, Yeah, I, think, I feel like that's yeah. really standard where there's very, like multiple little subplots going on within one episode. But because of this, this creates a challenge of having to intertwine separate stories, but also meaning that they need so many potential storylines because they need three per episode. Mm-hmm. So a single season of Friends would require about 72 separate plots, Ugh. each with its own introduction and resolution jokes emotional moments and everything like that and then and i also read like fully plotted stories would regularly be tossed out because they flopped in rehearsals or during a shoot so like imagine like writing something it doesn't go well in the rehearsal so we're back to square one here yeah oh because that's another thing about friends i think it was pretty much recorded live the entire time as well which is insane yeah because that's not done anymore like they don't do that but they actually like they don't have a laugh track for friends it's live audience which is a very big deal makes it so much more bearable that it is a live audience (laughs) and not a live track (laughs) a laugh track on other shows though apparently there's like more of an emphasis that's placed on an individual effort like writers would kind of go off Mm -hmm. on their own and craft scripts and and then like the room all together would polish them but that's not exactly what it was with friends where writers would write the first drafts and ultimately be granted credit for the episode but the true work was done in the room together so it wasn't so much like oh you take this part you take this part you take this part like everyone took ownership and like was responsible for improving each line each joke each emotion beat of the show it wasn't like a do your own work crane and kaufman were responsible for hiring the writers they like definitely focused on writers who had their own preferred writing style and voice and definitely ensured that they complemented each other which i feel like is so complicated what a process to find a bunch of writers that you're like oh yeah they will work together this article compared it to like it's like an arranged marriage between a dozen different people and it should have been impossible instead mm-hmm. there was a kind of magic present in the room where writers competing to tell the best joke were also able to carve out their own voices 
which I like that. I'm, I mean, I am sure it wasn't always a beautiful work environment. It sounds very hectic. Um, but <laughs> I know even the fact that the, it was like 12 people all writing on one script. Like, oh my gosh. Like group project nightmare. And yet it was able to come out as something so successful that they mm-hmm. did it with every single episode. Like that's insane. I know. It talked about how the two creators like rather than looking for a fully formed idea that could just be inserted directly into a script they were happy just to gather little like shards of the writer's inspiration they would take one idea from here one joke from there and then would just like began assembling it into some type of workable material and if they hadn't found something they were pleased with they would tell the writers just to keep looking um their lack their writer's lack of experience was a bonus not a problem more than anything crane and kaufman did not want to hear from their writers that this was the way it had always been done on who's the boss they preferred the company of young writers who did not know about how it was done on television which part of me is like i feel like that's potentially toxic because you can super exploit people that way but (laughs) hopefully it wasn't a bad environment yeah they were hiring writers that were unexperienced that hadn't had a job and like what an opportunity to like go Mm -hmm. work on friends yeah like one of the major probably the most successful sitcom of all time Mm -hmm. I don't think that's like a weird thing to say I think that's pretty much (laughs) the credit that it is due (laughs) true 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 so they talked about the fact though like if there was a storyline that would collapse during a run-through basically they were there all night or super late at night trying as fast as possible to write a new one marta had like a rules because she had two young children and inevitably you know if a storyline did not go well during a run through they would have another very late night but she had a private rule that she would not miss her children's bedtime two nights in a row so on late nights she would drive home put her children to bed and then return to the office on very late nights Kaufman would drive home as the sun came up shower feed her children breakfast and get them dressed to school and then head back to work so I can only imagine raising two children while writing like one of the most popular television shows but I think it's cool like she had that rule I won't miss Mm -hmm. the bedtime twice in a row those boundaries is like being a parent but then also having a career like well I just love that she didn't say like I'm never going to miss bedtime like Mm -hmm. she recognized that that was impossible so she was just like I'm never gonna miss it two nights in a row Mm-hmm. Like I always make sure that at least every other day I'm, I'm putting there. them to bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really cool because it's a way to like realistically be a professional mom. Yeah. Like- <laughs> but then also like that if like it warranted it, if she knew she had to come back after, like she would. Like it sounds like yeah. I think it's cool that they were obviously so hands on throughout this process. Mm. It talked about how they were really willing to trust their writer's enthusiasm, even if they didn't really quite get it. They would rarely simply veto a storyline, preferring to push back against their writers when they felt a pitch was too juvenile or emotionally barren. Um, Greg Malin's pitch about an obstetrician who would enter the room offering an array of facts about Fonzie from Happy Days while delivering Phoebe's trip so thoroughly amused the writers that it made the final version of the 100th um, and then crane insisted that the idea made no sense at all but was willing to be won over by his writer's enthusiasm yeah and that did end up in the final episodes and it doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense but <laughs> i'm glad that they were enthusiastic about it <laughs> one person's real idea that they were just thrilled about other times though writers could not overcome Kaufman and Crane's skepticism as with their suggestion for a storyline in which Phoebe's gusto for Chinese food leads her to attempt to marry it quote Marta said I just find myself not caring and that's like regularly how she would respond to pitches that she felt lacked an emotional 
through line. Mm-hmm. Andrew Rye, who was a writer on it, he said that he found it enormously beneficial to have Kaufman and Crane ask questions like, what does Rachel want in this scene? But also, I thought this was interesting. Occasionally, the actors would nix plot lines that they could not stomach. So for example, there's a story in which Chandler would sneak into a gay bar because he loved the chef's tuna melts. But Matthew Perry said no. And so the story was shelved. I also remember reading the reason the whole Joey Rachel thing didn't continue on any further than it did. Uh Like when Joey and Rachel are in a relationship is because like Jennifer Aniston and Matt LeBlanc didn't want like they felt awkward about it. And they were like, this isn't right. Like, this feels too weird. And so even though, like, later on, a lot of people now, like, popularize the idea, kind of, like, Mm -hmm. that's why it was so short-lived, because the actors couldn't handle it any longer. But I guess if even (laughs) the actors are like, no, this is not true to character. I don't like this. I feel weird about this. Like, okay, let's let's trust it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I love that they were able to kind of put their input in as well. (laughs) This is an interesting point, though. So... Besides the fact that obviously one of the creators was a woman, the Friends writer's room was, of course, you know, still an exceedingly male place with its taste interests formed by just the concerns of funny young men. But in later years, apparently the staff would eventually become more like balanced. It was kind of left to the few women in the room to push back against plot lines that they didn't feel like was right. In the second season, there are preparations for like a Super Bowl episode and there was a writer at the time there was only two female writers on the staff and they had an issue which with what they preserved to be like a sexist plot line that pitted Monica and Rachel against each other in a competition for a movie star and apparently she said if they're friends they're not going to do that that's bad for the sisterhood they would never do that and like she was really disturbed by the girl fight vibe of the episode complete with like the wardrobe choices and everything like why were monica and rachel wearing flimsy t-shirts on a cold set and what was supposed to be a winter day she told crane that she thought the plot line was beneath the show's lofty standards crane heard her out and told her listen i don't exactly what understand what some of the politics you're saying are and i get that you're really riled up about it but we are actually going to do this story but over the course of the day could you just stop me when something's offensive to you <laughs> and she said that she felt she'd been put in a difficult position hired against her will to serve as a feminist scold and designated spoil sport but she dutifully communicated her concerns to crane over the course of the shoot and this said in parentheses and the t-shirts ended up staying so yeah and the plot line did too yep I really like this last um, quote here. It said, Kaufman and Crane were permanent reminders in the writer's room that as much as the crew of mostly single, mostly 20-something smart Alex might have been allergic to sentiment, it was that very sentiment that would win audiences over to friends' side. The room generally agreed that, along with Crane, that Kaufman and Junga were among the best at providing the emotional nuances the show needed. And that's the same writer who had the issue with the mm-hmm. sexist plot line. Without Ross and Rachel and the audience's desire to see their relationship through, viewers would have never have bothered with the show, no matter how many bombs Chandler or Joey might have dropped. So I kind of like that. Like, you know, it was really cool hearing about like that whole or reading about that whole writing process. But I also love that last paragraph of like they were the ones who was like, nope, the sentiment here really matters. And like they were the ones to like really hold to that until the very end of the show, because it's true. Like Ross and Rachel, Monica and Chandler, like, Mm -hmm. you know, those relationships and like seeing what happened to Phoebe and Joey and everything like that's what makes the show so fun. It's not really the fact that it's funny. 
in yeah. my opinion. Otherwise, the finale wouldn't make everyone cry. You exactly. Know? Like, yeah, when they're all leaving the apartment. Yeah. And they put the keys down and then mm-hmm. I'll walk out. It's just, yeah. And even though it's still funny in those moments, like Chandler dropping that last joke of, should we all go get coffee? Yeah, where should we go? Yeah. <laughs> when it's like, they all went to the same spot, you know. It's still able to have that, like, appeal that brings people back every time. So now into, like, the impact of Friends. Friends has pretty much been significantly known as the sitcom that changed television forever yeah (laughs) and I don't think that's an understatement and of course like with all of these tv shows there are issues with them there are problems there's moments that are extremely tone deaf compared to today's society but they are products of the time period Mm -hmm. um and yet the significance of them is still important, especially relating to that time. And so there's actually a book called I'll Be There For You by Kelsey Miller. And she goes into like in depth into the writing process, the impact of Friends, different things that made Friends the television show that it is. This is from some stuff about an article about her book. This is kind of a fun little state of the arts almost for Friends is that Friends came out before, but then continued airing after 9-11, which was a major deal for television because after 9-11, television kind of had some problems. (laughs) It's almost kind of what we're seeing now with the pandemic, where there was just like national tragedy. Everything kind of stopped and had to recalibrate because this Mm. major thing had happened that had changed history forever. And yet, how do you address that in a show that's supposed to be lighthearted and funny? You know, like there's not really like a good way to do that without either like overdoing it or what we're seeing now. A lot of people are like, I don't want to watch about the pandemic on TV. Mm -hmm. And so people didn't want to like watch the friends react to 9-11 all over again. Like that just sounds like the least funny thing that could have ever happened. And so they were kind of in this position where... They were like, before the attacks had happened, actually, 9-11, the show was planning on wrapping up after the next season. The audience was just drifting away. And then afterward, unlike a lot of other television shows, viewers came flooding back. Wow. And it was kind of like fascinating. And they were trying to figure out what it was. But then they realized that what it was is the fact that Friends was New York. It was unchanged, familiar, and really good comedy. So it was Mm -hmm. like kind of bringing this lightheartedness back to like the city that had gone through this huge devastation. Mm -hmm. And it felt familiar and comforting amongst everything else that didn't feel familiar and comforting at the time. And so people were able to go back to it and watch it and feel peace in it, regardless of everything else that was happening. And so the show would continue to run. So 9-11 happened in 2001. The show would run for three more years after that. And even organically added in tributes, which I haven't noticed, but now I want to go back and look. Mm -hmm. They have like a New York Fire Department shirts, American flags in the background, just were able to add a lot more of like New York City pride into the background of the show without ever having to actually address the attack in the storyline, which I think was a really cool way that they were able to handle that because they were able to like mold it into part of what made New York what it was without actually having to like show this huge devastating national tragedy on television yeah interesting like I never would have like thought of like that as like a amazing positive thing like you know I just wouldn't have associated that but I also was really young in 2001 so (laughs) but no it was really cool to read about that and kind of the impact that that had and how it mirrors today 
Some significant moments that happened in Friends are one, the lesbian wedding. Although Friends does not handle homosexuality in a good way at all. No. There's like <laughs> so many awful tone deaf jokes and like making fun of Chandler constantly for his more like effeminate traits and everything. Like I trust me, this show is not perfect. But one of the major things that it did was actually had that relation like that relationship and wedding between Carol and Susan, which was a huge landmark for TV. So kind of a funny thing, they weren't even allowed to officially kiss on screen at their own wedding because that was wow. considered too much. But having a lesbian couple get officially married on a major television network in 1996 was a very, very big deal. I actually checked to look what other shows had done it in the past. First off, it was the only one up to that time that had ever had a lesbian couple rather than two men. And it was an official wedding ceremony, which is a big deal because a lot of others previously had mentioned it but had never shown it. Or they had had like commitment ceremonies but never actually called it a wedding. And there was only like five or six before that that had ever had anything like this at all. And it was always a gay couple. So to have like an actual official lesbian wedding on national television was a major envelope pushing moment for TV. Like that had never been done. So say what you will, but that definitely probably opened the gates to a lot more representation on television. And another big one with that is Chandler's dad, who is actually one of the first depictions that there there ever was of a trans character on television. And of course, does not handle it well either. (laughs) Yeah, no. I was like, (laughs) no. There's a lot of polarizing and problematic moments for that character as well, especially lots of trans jokes that just don't land well in hindsight. And even though his dad was played by a woman and not a trans actor, it was still a really revolutionary moment for television to have like an openly trans character on TV. They actually, the author of that book, interviewed a trans woman who wasn't out yet while still in college. And she said that she would watch Friends and another show called Trans America over and over again because it was the only representation of trans people at all on television. And so she said, she told me, yeah, looking back, it's horrible how they treat her and the fact that she's such a joke. But at that time, the only places you saw trans characters was on Law and Order and they would be a murder victim. So to have like... Yeah, so to have like a successful trans character on television was an extremely controversial deal at the time, regardless of how tone deaf it was kind of handled. One of the major things that Friends is known for is its equal pay among the actors, which is a very big deal. So the way that a lot of TV shows work is that they have like a primary set of actors and then they have secondary characters. The Office is like a good example. They started out with I think it was Michael, Dwight, Pam, and Jim were all primary actors, and everyone else was secondary. So that means that the majority of the screen time is taken up by those primary actors with secondary characters kind of filling out the space. And that was how every show has been set up pretty much since the beginning of time. However, Friends kind of threw that away completely. (laughs) Phoebe and Chandler were originally cast as secondary characters, which is hilarious now to think of where their storylines end up. David Schwimmer actually went in and even though he was cast as a primary character he told the whole cast that they should negotiate as a full unit and be like transparent about how much they're getting paid and work to get equal pay and equal airtime and they actually did I think it only took like a season or two 
before they were all making the same amount of money and getting about the same screen time. Which like that's what makes Friends so good is the fact that it's just all five of them, you know, and like yeah, six. all their shenanigans. Oh, six. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're good. But yeah, that's kind of the it's crazy. And there was even a chart I saw that had the screen time of each character broken down. And it's kind of funny because it wasn't what I expected. So David Schwimmer actually ends up with the most and Phoebe ends up with the least. But the margins are ridiculously small, like Mm. compared to every other show. Like they were so close to having the same screen time that it's probably just those first couple of seasons where they really pushed like Monica and Ross as like the main characters that they end up pushing it just a little bit beyond that equal spot. What's also crazy is that they really pushed for a lot of pay per episode, which should also have been kind of unheard of. Obviously, producers in the network would usually get the bulk of the money from a show success. But by the end of the seasons of Friends, they were each and every single one of those actors of that main six were making a million dollars per episode. A million per episode. Like, that means they're earning a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. And the fact that, like, the men and women were making the same was, like, beyond progressive for that time period. There was no pay difference between the women and the men in that show, which is huge. And it would go on to inspire the same kind of camaraderie between cast members in other shows as well. The Big Bang Theory also followed suit to make sure that the whole on-screen family got equal time and equal pay as much as they could and friends also created that whole new archetype that's become really popular of the gang type situational comedy where it's just a whole group of people kind of not really doing anything um Mm -hmm. and shows that would follow suit are like new girl big bang theory how i met your mother happy endings and my boys some other major things with pop culture is the rachel haircut became so ridiculously popular it was the most asked for hairstyle (laughs) Wow. That year and a couple of years following. Another thing is at that time, all sitcoms kind of revolved around a family home or a workplace. So it would have like the mom and dad and their kids. And then you would see the mom at home, the dad at work, and then the kids at school. And they would all kind of come back together in their home. And that was the formula of a sitcom. Or you'd throw in some grandparents or something. Like it wasn't always that standard but that was the general idea is that you'd have like work and then you'd have home and that's where it existed there was also always this idea that you had to have like an older mentor in place in order to like coach the younger generation okay yeah Um, and they even talked about adding that early in Friends, that they were going to have, like, one of the friends be old and kind of be, like, the that guide. kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, because they thought that it was such a necessary thing, You like, in order to have a good plot and balance in the cast, have, like, a good parental example, you had to have, like, an older Mm, like the older wiser yeah yeah and so in order to kind of appease the network that's why they ended up adding in like monica and ross's parents as soon as they did Mm. because they're like you have to have older representation and they're like well we're not making one of the original six like 10 or 20 Mm -hmm. years older so friends is actually one of the first shows that removed that mentor character and also kind of showed parents not as like a good parental examples but almost villains (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like all their parents kind of suck. Like, 
they don't have great relationships with no. their parents, do and they? And it really pulls on like the different backgrounds that each character has with their parents. You have Chandler's family and his whole story, and then you have Monica and Ross, who even though they're siblings, they have extremely different relationships with their parents. Yeah. Um, you have Rachel with her like rich parents that kind of are like overprotective, but like also very neglectful in a lot of ways. You have Phoebe, who's pretty much alone, yeah, and Joey, who has like this big Italian family that Olive's far away <laughs> just really played on those dynamics that had been considered so important to shows before that time and then mm-hmm. friends kind of made a whole deal of why it wasn't actually that important to have those roles and obviously there's so much more i could have kept going forever but i just stuck with those main ones but it's um, pretty significant yeah it's a really big deal and i have read i think i've read like half of that book before i had to return it to the ri- library about a year ago but it was really fascinating on how it talked about just the different things that the cast and crew and everything did and what made friends like so significant for its time period just even like the concept yeah just like a coffee shop with six people in their mid-20s that are never at work and are always (laughs) just hanging out in this coffee shop like that was people were like how is that going to be a show that has nothing and yeah, like it was everything. It was, yeah. So yeah, it's like a very, very fundamental place for television, even yeah. though it's literally about nothing Just at all. Six <laughs> people living their life. That's friends. Well, to Gilmore Girls. So the creator is Amy Sherman Palladino. She was born January 17th, 1966. She's an American television writer, director, and producer. And she's the creator of the comedy drama series Gilmore Girls, Bunheads, and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I had no idea until I did the research for this that she did the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I've truthfully mm-hmm. only watched the first two seasons of that show, but I genuinely loved the first two seasons. So oh, that's awesome. I haven't mm-hmm. seen it, but I've heard good things. Yeah, I feel like I need to actually go back and watch it and finish Mm -hmm. it, but I really liked it. So she has received six primetime Emmy Awards for her work, including Outstanding Comedy Series, Outstanding Director, Directing of a Comedy Series, Outstanding Writer for a Comedy Series, and Outstanding Music Supervision, and they were all for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And she was the first woman to win in the Comedy Writing and Directing categories at the Primetime Emmy Awards in 2019. So she was the very first woman to win both of those. It took until 2019 for a woman Mm -hmm. to win in Comedy Writing and Directing. Yeah, both the same night. Yep. And then she also received the Norman Lear Achievement Award in Television from the Producers Guild of America. Very, very successful. Not necessarily Gilmore Girls, but I mean, yeah. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, go watch it. It's really good. We'll talk about why later. She was actually trained in classical ballet since she was four, and she took other forms of dance in her teens. Originally, she had the goals of being a dancer, and she received a callback to the musical Cats while also having a possible writing position on the staff of Roseanne in rotation. So, but then when her and her writing partner, Jennifer Heath, were asked to join the staff of Roseanne, she left behind her dancing career, which apparently was much to her mother's dismay, and began writing for television. So, she became a staff writer on Roseanne during the show's third season in 1990. Among the storylines and episodes she wrote was an Emmy-nominated episode about birth control. Uh, She left the show after season six in 1994 and worked on several other projects, including a failed 1996 sitcom Love and Marriage, the the 1997 sitcom Over the Top, and writing several scripts of the NBC sitcom Veronica's Closet. She is best known as the creator and executive producer of Gilmore Girls, which was in 
created and first launched in the year 2000, which is an hour-long television comedy drama that originally aired on the WB network and concluded on its successor network, the CW. So, and then of course, like we've mentioned, there was a four-episode revival in mm-hmm. 2015. So this is crazy. So in selling the show, she said that during her pitch meeting for landing a script order, Gilmore Girls was presented as a last-ditch effort thought up on the spot due to a lacking response from the network executives towards her other ideas i love that (laughs) Mm -hmm. she presented this last hope as a show about a mother and daughter but they're more like best friends and the executives were sold immediately and then afterwards during a trip to connecticut she and her husband daniel were inspired to center the show there allowing a rich settling for a small town community and the divide between the waspy social like climbers of hartford connecticut Mm, so i was like that's so like cool like it literally was like a well what about this that she thought on the spot and they're like oh yeah i love that and then a trip and she's like okay i'll be set here in producing the show her and her husband wore many hats as the creative forces of the show writing a large number of the episodes and also acting as the directors producers and showrunners for six of its seven year run wow that's a long time to wear that many hats i know so that leads to why she stopped working for gamble girls so on april 20th of 2006 it was announced that her and her husband daniel could not come to an agreement with the cw to continue their contracts as a result their involvement with gilmore girls came to an end their official statement was despite our best efforts to return and ensure the future of gilmore girls for years to come we were unable to reach an agreement with the studio and are therefore leaving when our contracts expire at the end of this season our heartfelt thanks go out to our amazing cast hardworking crew and loyal fans um but then in 2012 she did a interview with vulture and this is what she said she said it was a botched negotiation it really was about the fact that i was working too much i was going to be the crazy person who was locked in my house and never came out i heard a lot of amy doesn't need a writing staff because she and her husband write everything i thought that's a great mentality on your part but if you want to keep the show going for two more years let me hire more writers by the way all that we asked for they had to do it anyway when we left they hired this big writing staff and a producer director on stage that's what bugged me the most they wound up having to do what we asked for anyways i just wasn't there which is oh, like that would be oh, so annoying that sucks so bad yeah. they're like if you stay then you don't get it but the minute you leave we're gonna do it anyway we're gonna have to do it yeah and then in october 2015 it was reported that netflix struck a deal with warner bros to revive this series for a limited run that was just 40 excuse me four 90 minute episodes and she was in charge of the new episodes titled gilmore girls a year in the life and the four episodes were named after the seasons and they became available in 2016 even though and it said that even though she gave fans seven successful seasons of gilmore girls it wasn't until recently that she finally received recognition for her amazing talents her most recent show marvelous mrs Maisel, finally gained a win for the producer who had been nominated numerous times her win for the first season of mrs Maisel allowed her like i mentioned to, be, to make history as the first woman to win in both categories opening the door for other female writers to go on and win even more so there's a little bit more about the writer and how that process was which was insane to read about we're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists i don't have a spotlight but i'm gonna shout out my favorite tv show that was created by a woman so have you ever watched the tv show crazy ex-girlfriend Mm-mm. okay I, I need to now love this show listen this is another thing like is this tv show problematic 
Mm, yeah. In in ways. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a not perfect, but do you want to know what I love this show? This is my comfort show. And this show is pretty much my humor. I can't look away because the the main character is sometimes like so awful that I hate her. <laughs> and she messes her life up. I, I don't know. I feel like you have to see it to understand it. Mm-hmm. And there's also like songs that are sung, like funny comedic songs. So let me, the creator of it is named Rachel Bloom and she also stars in it. Okay. The show like drew consistently low ratings throughout its four season run. So like <laughs> it didn't do well, but it did receive critical acclaim and won several awards including like primetime Emmy Awards, Golden Globe, and a Critics' Choice Award, which is like so confusing. Like it's one of the lowest rated shows in television history to be renewed through four seasons by its parent network. Mm-hmm. So, so like <laughs> make that what you will. That's but funny. like there's songs in it. So Rachel Bloom like writes songs. Like I feel like she kind of reminds me of like Bo Burnham in like okay. the way she writes songs that are funny. But it's like through the... I through this character and like a pretty common recurring theme is like the main character's like dealings with mental illness and treatment i don't know and like the way it like talks about and how she deals with things i am not describing this show well but it's just such a ridiculous show that i love it so much and i kind of hate too like almost mm-hmm. like at a certain point i just had to sit down and finish it but i love it i love all of those characters so much so go watch crazy ex-girlfriend you have watched it please um let me know your thoughts to give you a brief synopsis the leading role rebecca bunch a lawyer moves from new york to west covina california to pursue her ex-boyfriend from high school summer camp hence the shenanigans begin it's oh, a I good show that. cool so, yes another female fronted television show just not quite as impactful as the ones we <laughs> talked about that's okay i'll actually i'll highlight another one Um, This is new. There's only two episodes out right now. Mm. But have you heard about How I Met Your Father? I've seen like the social media ads for it. Yes. So it literally was released this year. It's starring Hilary Duff. Yeah, which which I'm excited about. The nostalgia alone for that is just... um, And it's playing off of How I Met Your Mother. It even has the same theme song but it's focused on a girl named Sophie and she's telling her son the story of how she met his father and so the older version of Hilary Duff is actually played by Kim Cattrall which is so charming (laughs) and hilarious and then um, it flashes back to Hilary Duff and her kind of going about her life so I was never a huge fan of how I met your mother it just I'm Um, not particularly either. Yeah, like I got the concept um, and I like was charmed by the concept, but I couldn't enjoy the episodes just because I didn't really like the characters that much. (laughs) Whatever. I'm probably making so many people mad. (laughs) It's okay. I I understand you, your opinions. Yeah. Plus, I heard that like the finale was the most disappointing thing ever to a lot of people. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. So I think what's going to be cool about this is they'll have a chance to capture a lot of that same familiarity Mm -hmm. without making a lot of the same mistakes. 
um hopefully i mean doing reboots yeah. i feel like i'm sure is so scary like yes and the fun part is, is well. that it's like a reboot without being a reboot like True. it's a completely different story new cast of characters different time period just um, similarish concept and i've watched the first episode i believe What's and it on I again? thought it was really cute. It's on Hulu. Okay, cool. Maybe I'll watch it then. Sweet. I yeah. wasn't planning on it, but I'll check it out now. I really enjoyed it. She talks about like Tinder dating, which I thought was funny. And I just thought it was really charming, really well done. So I don't know if it's going to like get worse or get better, but kind <laughs> hey, of fun to we'll be give watching it a shot. something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And honestly, it's Hillary Duff. Like I'll do yes. that for nostalgia's sake. <laughs> and it also is co-created by a man and a woman by Isaac Apticker and Elizabeth Berger who have mentioned that they are terrified about the fact that it's so connected to such a popular show, but also really excited about how it's going to progress and move forward. So that means they believe in it. Hooray. Yes. All right. Now back to the show. So significance of Gilmore Girls, kind of some funny things about it is that it was sort of the underdog that was always there but never quite getting the recognition that it deserved there was an article that said few would have predicted in 2000 that gilmore girls would be so enduring it was never a breakout hit never found its way into a mass audience never nominated for a major emmy never received the gotta watch it buzz of other shows that arrived around the same moment but the main things that really pushed it were word of mouth dvd sales millennial nostalgia and the power of netflix that ah. greenlit the reboot and really pushed a lot of new fans into the old show as well, which was crazy. So a few monumental things about Gilmore Girls was that the performers had scripts that were 20 pages longer than the average hour-long series. Sherman Palladino insisted that performers deliver the lines exactly as written as well. So if you cut one word, they'd cut the whole part and you would have to do it again. Oh, Wow. Yeah, so writing was like predominant. There was no improv and ad lib here. You were doing exactly what was written. And the reason they were 20 pages longer is because um, Sherman Palladino wanted to be able to fit more plot in less amount of time and more dialogue in less amount of time. And that's what kind of brought about the whole Lorelai and Rory fast-paced talking that's kind of hard to start off with like in the first episode mm-hmm. you're like holy crap they talk fast yeah and then by the end of the time you don't even notice anymore one of the things that Sherman Palladino kind of said from the very beginning which is funny because it kind of ties back into her original pitch is she said the show is about a mother and a daughter who are best friends as well as being mother and daughter and every conflict and dynamic should tick tack back and forth on that one point which I feel like it does do a pretty good job yes. at that yes it kind of became the whole heart of the show is that like no matter what else happens it all comes back to the relationship that Lorelai and Rory have and a longtime writer for the show Sheila Lawrence she actually said that of all the fans I talk to they generally fall into two categories either they have a Lorelai and Rory relationship or they desperately wish they had a Lorelai and Rory relationship which I thought was really cool another thing that they really focused on was making the small big and the big small so there's episodes about Lorelai dressing inappropriately to visit Rory's snooty new prep school. And that's basically the entire episode or Rory getting a D on a test and then it becomes like a small thing. So instead of focusing on storylines of like who in the town killed Sookie, there's like little moments that they really capitalize on that show off the true heart of the episode. Something else that was really cool about Gilmore Girls is it's the perfect blend of like high and low brow culture. 
because you have like the prep school, um, you have Emily and Richard and like that whole world that Rory's in and the books she reads and everything that's very studious, highbrow, like high academia. Mm -hmm. And then you also have like her life in Stars Hollow and you have Lane and Lorelai and they're like pop culture references. Yeah. And just like the endless amount of pop culture references is actually one of the reasons it's so ridiculously popular is because you can watch the episode and learn everything from like what happened to lost manuscripts to like a name of an obscure band to like true yeah like a weird gymnast gets mentioned and then they talk about like a battle of the conquistadors like the level of references and the like episodes. there's something for everyone yeah it's just insane and it's so layered that like no matter what generation you're a part of there's going to be jokes that you get that the rest of everyone else doesn't mm-hmm. um there's actually a tiktok account of a guy who takes gilmore girl episodes and breaks down every single reference that's in them that he didn't get and explains the joke oh that's so funny (laughs) yeah I'll have to link him because it's actually really funny he goes back and he's like oh so this moment when Lorelai says this this is actually what she's referring to and what the joke actually is because there's no way that you'll catch all of it first off because there's just way too much dialogue and it's moving too fast I feel like that just shows how impressive the writer like she knew all these references then her and her husband did (laughs) she knew all of them and that's also one of the things that makes it so cool about the show is that even with the amount of references it has the fact that it's popular now goes to show that you don't have to understand all of the references in order to still enjoy the show and I think that that's a really amazing thing as well is that like Laura got Laura can tell the joke and even if you don't get the joke you still get the sentiment one of the reasons that Laura Graham, Lauren Graham was actually hired to be Lorelai was because she was the first actress that pronounced Kerouac correctly, which is an author. And Sherman Palladino told her husband that after seeing her ended up hiring her because she needed someone who could keep up with kind of that bend between high and low brow that Lorelai was going to have, which I think is really cool. Um, there's actually a bunch of kind of like there was upset among the cast and The set for the fact that Lauren Graham was never nominated for an Emmy when she definitely deserved it. Like, she definitely deserved it. And they nominated her every time they could, but she just never got anything. Hmm. Um, And part of the reason was just because it was on WB, which was facing off against, like, behemoths like Friends and American Idol. But also because it was a series about women, written by women, that cast women, and um, Hollywood has never been the greatest at celebrating women <laughs> in that way. <laughs> um, you know, it, they celebrate middle-aged masculinity and they don't tend to celebrate like the young adult womanhood that was being shown in Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. So even though it was like, and it is like a total dream to look back on it and recognize it as a show of three generations of bad A women, that are developing like different relationships and showing the dynamics of what it's like. Well, that's what I like. I feel like it shows complicated relationships like so well. Yeah. Like I don't think that they're trying to portray Lorelai as a perfect mother. Like she's obviously so flawed as a human, but like you still like really like her and you're rooting for her, you know, even though like, you know how she's flawed. 
And same with like her and her mom, like yeah. Emily Gilmore and her, like you still are able to kind of recognize there's problems in this relationship, but you want them to work it out the yeah, entire time. Yeah, you want them to be friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even with like Elaine and her mom, like that's mm-hmm. a completely different dynamic. And yet it's still able to like show that relationship in a very unique way where you recognize that there's love there, even though there's so much conflict Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the incredible things about it is just the dynamicism of like female relationships. Yeah. What's annoying is the show during its entire run only received one Emmy nomination and award and it was for best makeup. So <laughs> okay. I think that that just goes to show the complete ignorance that Hollywood had at the time for this show and what I was truly doing and the impact that it would have. Of course, it's also not perfect. They, even though they had plus size characters like Lorelai and Rory, weren't the best at expressing like body positivity in good ways. Like, mm. I don't know, like we talked about with Friends and we'll talk about with New Girl, not every show is perfect. I think like every single show you'll watch on TV is going to be flawed. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it was able to make such a big impact in a lot of those like female relationships is a really mm-hmm. big deal. Also, have you heard of the Bechdel test? Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, so the Bechdel test is most common with movies. And the idea behind it is just that two female characters have to have a conversation together about something other than men. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's not even like a designated time period. It just has to happen at some point. So what's cool is that Friends, I actually forgot to mention this, Friends pretty much passes every single episode passes oh. the Bechdel test which is really impressive like extremely yeah, that's impressive a, that honestly kind of surprises me yes um Gilmore Girls is outstanding in this obviously with such a female forward cast they definitely pass the Bechdel test uh, multiple times every single episode which is incredible so if you're looking for an example of television that's not centered around romantic relationships when it comes to women like yeah. this is definitely it um and then um New Girl just really quickly since we're on the topic it doesn't do as well in the Bechdel test just because it is like there's more men in the cast. Yeah, I feel like the whole point of the show is that it's one girl and three men in the yeah. department. So I can see that that might be difficult. <laughs> and so she has Cece and then later on like more women come in. But it actually do- still does way better than a lot of other shows at the time period interesting Um, yeah so if you want to like if you're basing it just on Bechdel like all three of these shows are like way better than what you would expect sweet last but not least let's talk about new girl it was created by Elizabeth Hughes Merriweather born October 11th 1981 she is an American writer, producer, and television showrunner. She is known for creating, of course, New Girl, and for writing the play Oliver, Oliver Parker and the romantic comedy film No Strings Attached. She also created the ABC sitcom Single Parents and Bless This Mess. She actually graduated from Yale in 2004, and she double majored in English and theater studies, which I thought was cool. Mm-hmm. In 2006, she wrote the plays Hedatron and The Mistakes Madeline Made and Oliver Parker. She held a showcase of her plays in Los Angeles in which a young Emma Stone was cast. What? Right? And Meriwether has credited that showcase and Stone's participation as a very important point in her career trajectory, which like, yeah, yeah, they both went on (laughs) to be, be very successful. When she moved to Los Angeles, she developed a play called Sluts as part of a program to help aspiring 
playwrights adapt their scripts for television, she turned the idea into a television plot. The pilot, described as a raunchy, honest look at the messy dating lives of 20-something women, was filmed for 20th Century Fox Television, but ultimately it was not picked up. However, this is kind of like what succeeded in establishing her as a distinctive like comedic voice so even though the show didn't go well i think it like put her on the map as like a potential comedy writer so then in 2011 she wrote the romantic comedy film no strings attached that was directed by ivan reitman and starred natalie portman and ashton kutcher no big deal yeah like wow star-studded performances here (laughs) i know after her success with that movie 20th century fox television approached her about developing another television series she pitched an idea about an offbeat girl moving in with three single guys and and that was inspired by her experience of bouncing from craigless sublet to craigless sublet for four years in la when she was in her 20s I love that. I know. Like she actually did it. And that's why. She's like, I know it is a hilarious yeah. concept because this was my life. <laughs> that's awesome. So this show, New Girl, was greenlit in 2011 with an initial order of 13 episodes with Zoe Deschanel in the title role. It aired 146 episodes over seven seasons. It was well-received by critics, and it was nominated for a number of awards, including five Golden Globe Awards and five Primetime Emmy Awards. Mm -hmm. In 2013, she signed a multi-year overall deal with 20th Century Fox Television to develop an additional project for the studio, and then her deal was renewed into 2018. So she has just like been working with Fox Television, just developing more tv shows and stuff Mm -hmm. for them which is really cool other just like random things about her is she's part of a group called the vampire which is a group of female screenwriters that includes dana fox diablo cody and lorene scafaria in 2012 the vampire received the athena film festival award for creativity and sisterhood at barnard college in new york city the award for creativity and sisterhood I love that. Like that is an award I would be interested in winning one day. I agree. She's also, of course, a well-known feminist. And she's actually also done stand-up comedy and performed for the Vagina Monologues in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So I feel like her career is just getting started. But like how cool that new girl was like kind of based on her own life. And like, I also love that it like came from a failure, right? That whole concept failed, didn't go through. But like that's in the end, like what put her on the map with Fox and that's how she got that tv show new girl yeah, so i, I love, love it. that cool well i'm gonna try not to go on too much of a soapbox here but new girl is ridiculously layered <laughs> like i feel like the more i learn about it the more i'm like oh this show is so much deeper than anyone gives it credit for so first off right off the bat um i think one of the really important things about the show is it aired right after the financial crash of 2008 which of course had a big impact on the show itself. So I'm going to kind of compare it to Friends probably a lot just because it's very similar dynamic and cast settings, like Mm -hmm. even though they are very different shows when it comes down to it. But um, one thing that you kind of notice with Friends is that they're never at work and yet they still (laughs) manage to get promotions, have impressive work positions, and almost like pretty much all of them stay in the same industry and career throughout the entire run of the show. Yeah. Um, There is like a few job losses and stuff like that over different things, but none of them get laid off. Most of them end up getting fired or quitting and then they quickly find something new and end up being successful in that as well. I think the hardest time that any of them had finding a job on Friends was when Chandler was trying to go in advertising for a while 
And yet he still quickly lands an intern position and ends up getting a promotion at the end of the series. So unlike that, however, (laughs) New Girl shows the economic crash where even the two who are working the absolute hardest at their career, like Jess and Schmidt, which you can see from the very beginning, they both have a ridiculously hard time climbing the ladder. Like Schmidt gives his all to his job and he hardly ever gets a promotion. I think it happens like once and he's constantly working and trying hard for that. Yes. Um, Jess loses jobs multiple times just due to like layoff and other things that were happening at the time. Winston has a job search that goes on for episodes. <laughs> Coach has to find a new job throughout the series. So does Cece. And actually, surprisingly, Nick ends up being the only one who's consistent in his career. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> where he remains an author, well, a bartender throughout pretty much all of the series before um, uh, he ends up owning the bar and then writing a book while still being a bartender, even though he's the poorest character out of everyone in the loft. It just kind of shows like that struggle that comes with career that friends didn't really have as much of because besides Rachel, who didn't have any education, like obviously with all of them, they all have training and education. And yet it shows just like how sometimes you just lose your job because of the economy and it has nothing to do with your personal performance at all. So I thought that that was super interesting and kind of set up the like millennial generation struggles that friends didn't really have as much. Um, One of the other things that it was really important about with the millennial generation is like the idea of extended adolescence. So it's where it's this idea of like you grow up and you go to school and graduate and you still feel like a kid and it continues on for a lot longer than any other previous generation did. And I think that that is continuing to happen like more and more with each generation with the series starting with all of them being about a decade out of college and yet still having like a really hard time financially and professionally. Like, I mean, they're all living in one loft Mm -hmm. together, (laughs) which is pretty much like a dorm room. It still is like showing this idea of like being a grown up while not feeling like one. Yeah. And kind of the struggles that come with that, that I think a lot of our generation and the one yeah they relate to it a lot more it also brings up like debt and credit scores a lot more often than friends ever did or anything like that like really highlighting financial situations even in the later episodes of like schmidt and cc trying to get a house and how they just couldn't afford one and except for like the really crappy spooky one that they had to have renovations done for so just kind of the realistic part where it doesn't always work out in a dream way where you end up with the perfect apartment and perfect house and perfect job where it's a little bit more bumpy than that yeah. and then like that personal development that you have continues on a lot longer now with just the way that generations are growing up another really cool thing with it is that it brings up time and time again how important it is to make important decisions when you're ready for them and to wait for them things like nick moving in with carol cc getting married to her first husband then taylor swift breaks up the wedding um what oh, was his yeah. name? um like that whole relationship and how she was just kind of doing it because her biological clock was ticking when she didn't actually feel ready for marriage even like the main relationship of it all like jess and 
Nick. Nick, yeah. The fact that like they get together but end up breaking up just because they realize that they're not ready for it. Like specifically Nick, he's just not ready for a committed relationship yet and that they're still able to make it work later when he's finally, you know, grown up to a point where he's ready for it. So it just kind of begins to show that even like job responsibilities, like different things that they just aren't quite ready for. And so they end up waiting a little bit longer, which I think is something that is very common (laughs) with later generations. Um, Also, just like they are characters that get themselves into extremely relatable predicaments. Bad dates, awkward job interviews, doomed crushes, just like heightened versions of things that people experience every single day of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important part of the show that just manages to be the core of it. Um, Something that was cool is some articles I found. I found one article about a, a woman writing about New Girl and how she just loved it because it wasn't about anything. That she's like, it's a show that I can sit down and watch and it just, my brain just turns off and it's wonderful. She's like, it's just charming and funny and I don't have to think too hard about it. And then on the other side, I found so many articles about how like the different undercurrents of relationships and characters within it were so important to people. And so I think it's like it manages to be about everything and yet absolutely nothing. Yeah, it was like, I feel like it can be both. Like it feels like it's about nothing really. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, like the way that they play off of each other and like learn together and like grow up together in a way, like mm-hmm. even though they're not children, like you said, like if you feel like you watch these people grow up. It, it like it feels so important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you're subtly learning different things the entire time. Um, something that's like super significant is actually how it shows male friendships, which I think is extremely oh, yeah. important. I found a whole article about a male writer who talked about how significant it was to him that they got rid of a lot of those stereotypes between male friendships and really focused on the fact that like they're able to say like I love you and hug each other and like have like true core relationships without it being about like traditionally stereotypical male thing they're not sitting down in every single episode and like watching a sports game or like Mm -hmm. going to a strip club or something like they have these beautiful significant male friendships that are just so important and like fundamental and even like little things that they teach throughout the course like he talks about how Nick learns how to say I love you back to Schmidt when he's never said it before and like learns how to express emotion and even just like Schmidt and the character that he plays where he's like a total ladies man and yet he's like neurotic and actually kind of feminine yeah and yet he still has like the douchebag jar because he's like totally like a d-bag but like he's still you know feminine extremely clean and like (laughs) yeah like not the things that you'd like associate with like the douchebag exactly like he's a blend of monica and joey when that shouldn't be possible you know so it's Mm -hmm. just like different things that they do um which kind of leads into the next part of like their stereotypes that they defeat is just beyond anything else that i've ever seen in a show and the more i watch it the more i realize how much they truly took stereotypical roles throughout movies and tv shows and just completely destroyed Mm -hmm. them and we talked about this in like our movie tropes but it does it even more than I thought so kind of the funny thing about new girls when it started out all the marketing was based on like the manic pixie dream girl because that was the era that it came out in like it only came out 
three years after 500 Days of Summer. Oh, yeah. That was all the rage in the early 2010s. Yeah, they were, like, trying to capitalize on this, like, manic pixie dream girl, like, hipster character that Zoe Deschanel had become so known for. Mm-hmm. And so they took that, and they are like, awesome. But even from the beginning, instead of making her, like, a perfect manic pixie dream girl, they made her, the term that they use is adorkable. Yeah. And that is something that had only been done for, like, male TV nerds up until that point. Like, think of Ross Geller and how much he loved dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Or The Big Bang Theory. Like, pretty much all of the cast of The Big Bang Theory could be considered adorkable. And instead, they, like, took a female character and then made her quirky and weird, but, like, completely unpretentious about it and completely unselfconscious about it. And then one of the things that I love is even as the show developed and they moved away from all of their marketing landing on Jess and her character as a person, they never changed her character. They never toned down her weirdness. They never like made her cooler or like less, you know, like dorky. Like they never did that. They kept her who she was and like continued to show over and over again that that's just who she was. Like she wasn't pretending to be anything else. Like that was just Jess. That's just her personality. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's like a really cool thing is that her progression was much more about like the relationship she built and the things that she did rather than her personality changing. Because that's just who she was. Yeah, and I think that they were able to do that really well with all of them, Mm -hmm. that even though they progress, they don't really ever change. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, like, the ladies' man is actually really neurotic and even kind of feminine. Um, The pretty girl that Cece plays is kind of, like, a total mess, but also, like, really low-key. Like, she's not constantly going on about her nails and her hair Mm -hmm. and everything else that a lot of other traditional pretty girls had done in past media. And yet she was like this stereotypical pretty girl, like the model friend who was always put together. And yet she was really low key about it. And then you have like the ruggedly handsome masculine character whose Nick is somehow like so childish and gross and yet happens to be so charming (laughs) to the point where you're like, this is not an attractive character. And yet somehow he's like very attractive very beloved yes (laughs) and then one of my favorite things actually is that when Jess so it was actually when Zoe Deschanel left for maternity leave and they had Reagan who was played by Megan Fox come on that whole dynamic when they bring Jess back on and between her and Reagan is actually my favorite part of the entire show Um, because you have these two polar opposite stereotypes that suddenly are like best friends and have both been interested in the same man and have so many similarities, even though they're completely different people. Because Megan Fox had been considered like that cool girl for her entire yeah. career. And she comes onto a show and plays a stereotypically cool girl and then ends up not actually being all that cool. And like kind of shows that she's actually just built up it up as a front. And like little things like her wearing the jury t-shirt for Jess when she walks off or like crying at the TV interview. Like there's so much undercurrents that go into that where they just take every single stereotype of every single person and completely obliterate it which I really love even with like coach and him being like the athlete or Winston kind of being like the quirky black character and they're able to take it and make it more dimensional than any of these stereotypes had ever been allowed to before one of the coolest things though about new girl is just how diverse its main cast was I always think of the moment where well Nick is asking Reagan to move into the loft and he has to get approval from everyone and Winston makes it a condition 
that Reagan and Nick have to spend more time with Ferguson because they're the only non-interracial couple that Ferguson has ever seen <laughs> because him and Allie and Cece and Schmidt are both interracial couples. And he's like, they, he needs to better understand the dynamics of the world <laughs> that not everyone is as diverse as us. And I think it's so funny because when you look at it, they were able to pull in Schmidt is Jewish. Cece is Indian. You have Coach and Winston who are both black and yet are completely different characters. Don't end up playing the same stereotypes with that either. Mm-hmm. And then you have Nick and Jess who are white and somehow like you're able to create this completely dynamic diverse cast that all works together very well and it's actually listed as one of the top shows with a diverse main cast because it has so much diversity in it so yeah new girl like there's so much more into it I think like she definitely put a ton of thought into what she was doing with each of the characters and their progression and it like makes a really big impact on what it actually did yeah because it yeah but at the core what it really was about of course is just friendship and how it continues throughout time so i don't think i ever actually finished new girl and this makes me want to go finish it oh you need to i love new girl so much (laughs) yeah like i could just keep going like all of the um (laughs) guys have different like relationships with um abandonment with their fathers and how they handle it different ways and then you have like the girls who both have present parents but like Jess's family is divorced and then Cece's parents are together but like very very religious and a part of like a culture that's really hard for her to kind of like bridge the gap between like there's just so much that they handle that I think is really really monumental dang I wish I could like offer more commentary unfortunately we are covering shows that I truthfully have not even seen all of so <laughs> I don't I thought you much. had seen all of it <laughs> I, I hadn't seen all of New Girl I watched a lot of it when I was like I said processing my breakup um I don't know how much I actually paid attention and I'm not gonna lie that the main character Jess kind of drove me crazy But I've since gone back and realized maybe she drove me crazy because all of her flaws are what I feel like my flaws are. So Mm. I felt like I was getting put on blast on screen and I didn't like that. (laughs) No, that's good. I need to. I I was like, Uh, why am I so upset every time I watch this? And yeah. And then I finally put pieces together that perhaps I feel called out. Not like, I mean, I don't really feel like I have her like manic pixie, like, you know, nerd energy going on. But it's like the, it's like all of her like actual deep flaws as a character. I'm like, yeah, I think that's (laughs) me. But I I will go back and I will finish it. I have watched a couple of the seasons though. And it's, it's very nice. So, you know, the thing that goes around that it's like people with anxiety watch the same TV shows over and over again to feel comfort. Mm -hmm. That is like the epitome of me. (laughs) I have the same TV shows that I will literally watch over and over again. And I cycle through them. Like right now I'm on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for like the second time. Oh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine's good. Yeah. And it's like, why do I do that? I've already seen it. But it's just like so comforting to me that it's like no matter how many times everything else changes, like these TV shows stay exactly the same. Like Mm -hmm. the predictability is comforting. Yes. And that's why I've seen so many of these so many times. Just because I like, that's what I do. That's how I I cope. (laughs) See, my coping mechanism, if we're going to get really existential on the podcast for a second, (laughs) is like numbing. 
And so I will watch television shows, but then I'm also on my phone at the same time. So I'll watch whole shows and whole seasons and I have no idea what has happened. And that was my experience with New Girl. So when I paid attention, I was enjoying myself. But a huge bulk of my viewing time was spent in a state of not wellness. So (laughs) that makes sense. Yeah. We're working on paying attention and being present in the things (laughs) that I'm doing at all times because it makes me feel better when I am present. That makes sense. I get it. I think that's another reason I like watching them multiple times is because pick up other little things that I wasn't paying attention for and then I'm like wow I'm learning so much more. Well I hope everyone enjoyed learning more about these women fronted TV shows. Like I said I think part of the fun of this was like just learning that these women like created these TV shows that these TV shows were created by women because I just did not know. I thought it was kind of like a affirming moment for me when I found out the three of my favorite shows of all time. Yeah, were I was going to say, you should yeah. feel good about that. Yeah, because then I was like, wow, I feel so vindicated. Like, I can continue to love them as much as I do because they were <laughs> created by women. Not that we can't like things by men. I just... Um, I mean, I if think, we're going to yeah. have a podcast like this, though, we have to stay true <laughs> to brand. So it makes it kind of fun, especially when I like knew that Friends had been written by a woman. But I like quickly typed in like, was New Girl written by a woman? And then it did come up and I was like, <laughs> awesome. Yes. <laughs> Where it's just kind of one of those things that I think really shows um, just like the different side of writing in Hollywood that actually comes forward and is able to succeed mm-hmm. despite, you know, the inherent maleness of the industry that continues to prevail (laughs) yes you guys are fans of these tv shows let us know let's discuss i will get Mm -hmm. to work watching them and getting caught up and then yeah if there's any other tv shows that you guys like that were created or even just star women let us know maybe we can cover them on a future episode and then of course as usual if you're a fan of the podcast don't forget to leave us a review and we will be back next week with another one with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.